This evening somebody is, well actually it was last week, somebody asked if I would comment on their question, which says, so often the love we feel for our friends, pets, family, partners, etc. is characterized by need, grasping, clinging and fear of loss. How does one cultivate the state of non-attached love described by the Buddha without it becoming simply an intellectual cutting off of emotion. And they have been reading this verse from the Dhammapada, verse number 211, which says, Beware of the attachment that springs from fondness, for separation from those one holds dear is painful. Well, if you take sides neither for nor against fondness, there will be no bondage. So, I'm sure this question speaks to all of us in some way, to some extent, because we all feel fondness and then we all feel the pain of loss. And as those who have faith in the Buddha's teachings, uh, this question arises naturally. Um, how we, what are we supposed to do about this? How we feel the pain of losing the loved ones, whether it's friends or family or pets or or the weather or our own health. Whatever. When we're, we're, when we're separated from that which we're fond of, we, we suffer. And then as disciples of the Buddha, we obviously don't just react, we stop and think, well, what is the cause of the suffering? And the, the Buddhist basic formula is very clear, very straightforward, that uh, there's something you're doing there's something you're doing that's creating the suffering. The pain is one thing. And the Buddha, even in his state of perfect enlightenment, experienced pain, but he made it very clear he didn't experience suffering. And so there's a big difference between uh, the Buddha's experience of loss and our experience of loss. What is the difference? That's a, that's a really good question. And I'm happy to spend some time considering it this evening. On one level, um, perhaps a more conventional level, uh, I think, of practice, what helps is to have a, a clear sense of what the Buddha did say about these things and to, and to allow ourselves to trust in that. Have, having confidence in the teachings helps with these things. If we, the re, Actually, this question in the Dhammapada verse it's really talking about a very subtle level of practice. It's talking about going really deep within our hearts and, and looking at the, 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 the actual attachments and, and, and letting go very deeply. It's not, a, it's not a small thing that the Buddha is talking about here. It's not just something that we can read about or even think about uh, and, and then expect a quick fix. Uh, what he's talking about is, is very subtle and very profound. 
um, and worth doing. But also, even on a more conventional level, there is something we can do about our suffering, the suffering that comes from loss of the, the loved. And that is to really maintain, to cultivate and maintain trust in the teachings. Now, if you look at what happens so often when people who don't have confidence that there is a real reality, you know, they don't trust that there is truth, and they're faced with a sense of loss, uh, whether it's their favourite cat or or budgerigar or or a close family member, yeah. and how grief invades the heart, how the tendency to become overwhelmed by the sense of loss, and how tragic that is. If, if you yourselves have experienced being with somebody in that state, one can feel really hopeless. You're with somebody who is completely consumed by grief and the pain of loss. Of course, you don't want to say, well, you'll get over it, or, you know, or, or give them some fairy stories. I remember when I was young and I lost my grandmother. I was very, very close to my grandmother. And my grandmother was one of the most important people in the world. And uh, I was seriously grieving at the time. And I remember at the funeral, and, and the minister poked his head in the car and, and said, oh, she's gone to a nicer place. You know, that's, that's fairy stories. Yeah. How do you know she's gone to a nicer place? And anyway, I didn't have confidence in his story. And so I was very relieved when I came across the Buddha's story, which is actually not to avoid the reality of the pain of loss. This is life. You know, we're born with these sensitive bodies and the one thing that's guaranteed is we're going to die. That is the one thing that's guaranteed. Whatever happens between birth and death is not guaranteed. It's all very uncertain. All sorts of possibilities, huge potential for tremendous happiness and pleasure and joy and well-being and massive, massive possibilities for huge suffering and pain and discontentment. And we don't know how long we're going to live, but the one thing we can trust in and have confidence is we are going to die. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that is what life is about. And that's the basic Buddhist message. So if you're born, you're going to die. And there's, uh, the idea that there's something wrong with it is something extra we add to life. Now, the fact that, that um, we don't necessarily or get a very good spiritual education when we're very young um, we don't hear these truths necessarily, means that we do make up stories about life. And you look at all the cultures all the, around the world and you see people have invented different stories to avoid the fact that we're all going to die, that loss is inevitable and it's going to hurt. But what the Buddha was giving was a very different approach. He was saying equip yourself with the understanding which means that you can endure the pain. You didn't pretend it, didn't, didn't pretend. Said this will be painful, guaranteed. From birth through to death, there's going to be a lot of pain. But if we are mindful, if we exercise wise restraint and, and, and cultivate mindfulness, well then we can not only endure, but we can use even the pain of life to uplift and inspire and educate the heart and mind with wisdom. And, uh, and, and what wisdom tells us, and eventually what hopefully maybe wisdom even shows us, we start to see for ourselves, is that, that we're not victims, that the pain of life is not something going wrong. 
But it's just so. Loss of pets, loss of partners, loss of relatives, loss of our own faculties, loss of our own life is just so. But there is something we do and we do tend to do which habitually complicates it, which the Buddha realized and called attachment. But this is something not this is not something that happens to us. Attachment is not something happening to us. Attachment is something we do. It's like if there's a, a cup of tea in front of you and you've got a hand and you've got a cup of tea, you've got to do something to get that cup of tea to your mouth, right? You've got to move, pick it up and hold it and and that's very agreeable. Now, does that mean you're attached to the cup? Not necessarily. Maybe you're just holding it. You're doing something, but how are you doing? What are you doing? You're holding it carefully, wisely, skillfully. You're engaging it, picking it up, relating to it, and then putting it out and then letting it go. Now, the Buddha said this is a wise relationship to life. An unskillful, unwise relationship to life is where you grasp at something. And if you grasp the cup of tea, well, you know, if the tea's all finished, what do you want to be hanging on to it for? You know, if you grasp it too hard, you break the handle off it. You know? Or another experience, if you're like driving a car, you've got to have your hands on the steering wheel. You know, you've got some power, you've got some movement. You've got to control this vehicle. So you have at least one hand. But if you hold it too tightly, what is the experience? If you're grasping it, you get tense shoulders and you start getting a headache and you're not a good driver. And it's, uh... But you do have to hold. And so with regards to our experiences of life, the joys and the sorrows, the Buddha is not saying don't engage in life. He's not saying don't experience joy, don't experience sorrow. But he's saying investigate the relationship you have with the joys and sorrows of life. Cultivate the mindfulness and the restraint to the point where you can see for yourself. Now, as I said, that's actually uh, that's something that you have to go very subtle with to, um, and consistently with to really be able to see in the way that we need to see to let go in the way we need to let go because the habits of grasping have been going on for so long. Yeah, all of this life and, and, uh, and from the Buddhist perspective, previous lives as well. But certainly in this life, you see, as children, yeah, the moment they start to grasp and... You know, just hanging on to things that, that are pleasant and hanging on to mummy and hanging on to the food and, and just hanging on and to get security. And, and unless once we start to emerge from childhood, we have the good fortune to receive wise teachings uh, that actually you've got to be careful with this hanging on because you know, it's okay when you're a child to hang on to mummy. That's perfectly understandable. But when you've got your own sense of individuality together, you need to actually investigate the process of hanging on, because you hang on the wrong way at the wrong time, you're going to just fill your life with so much stress, it's going to be unlivable. So as children, grasping is perfectly natural. You don't want to teach children about letting go. You know, Before seven years old, children should be grasping. That's what they're supposed to be doing. But once they've reached a certain stage, well, then there's time to actually teach them, you know, to introduce children to death. When the pet dies, you don't hide death from them. Old age, sickness. We don't have to hide these things from children. If children grow up seeing these things, well, then they're not actually entertaining or cultivating the ignorant habits of denial, which is what a lot of what our, our culture does. 
So even at, uh, even at a conventional level, we hear these teachings from the Buddha that there is a cause for suffering. That when there's loss of a loved one, the pain that comes is one thing, that's perfectly understandable, but that suffering is something else. There's a cause for it, and it's a habit of clinging. Now, whether one's practicing on a subtle level or not, or meditating or not, one can have confidence in that. And that can make a huge difference. You make a huge difference when you're suffering. You, when you lose somebody you love, or, you know, the pain is there, yes. the suffering is there as well, but you understand why. And that's very different from when you see somebody who's totally overwhelmed with grief and lost in despair because they don't have confidence, they don't have respect for, for true teachings, uh, sadly, regrettably. And so at a very conventional level, there is something we can do about it, and that is to maintain a heart of trust and confidence in Dhamma, in the Buddhist teachings, that when you're suffering, this is not something going wrong. There's a cause for this. If we're busy saying it shouldn't be this way, well, that's something we're adding to the situation. We can say, actually, what we can say is, this hurts. This hurts. This really hurts. And there can be tears, but we don't have to get lost in the tears. There can be grief, but we don't have to get lost in the grief. Um, It happens all the time. Last weekend, most of us went down to Amaravati to say goodbye to Lumpur Sumato. And uh, very sad, after all these years of being together, to see him going back to live in Thailand. And personally, because I'm not flying out to Thailand anymore, I don't know if or when I'll see him again. And that's, that's sad. Real, really felt like a funeral, actually, at Amarawati last weekend. In fact, as Mr. Maida said, it's like enjoying your own funeral. And I don't have to wait. To, all these people can say all these lovely things about me and I can hear them. Yeah, so for him, well, actually, even for him, to be honest, there's, there's a lot of sadness as well. But do you get lost in the sadness? That's the thing. Can you feel sad without getting lost in it? That's the point. That's the practice. And the practice means to cultivate those faculties that means that we can feel what we feel without becoming them. The most, most fundamental exercise in Buddhist practice is, is not to not have certain feelings. You can't... You know, the Buddha talked about the sense of loss. You know, he, he had certainly had feelings of agreeability and disagreeability. The Buddha didn't go and live in the local... Dump. You know, he didn't go down to the local recycle station in India, you know, where it all stank and looked ugly. He, he sought out bamboo groves and birds, places with beautiful bird song and flowing streams and gorgeous places and, and, and the man, mango groves. And he talked about these wonderful places that you could sit and, and be uplifted and it would support your contemplations. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with finding certain places and conditions agreeable. Or disagreeable, you know, when sometimes the, the monks were all squabbling and causing him a headache, he would let them know he found their company disagreeable and told them, so I'm going off to the forest, thank you very much. You know, trees are much nicer company than you guys. Well, actually, I don't think he said that, but you know, that's, that's, that's what he did. He, the trees are much more agreeable to this fully enlightened Buddha than these arguing monks. So it's not, we're not talking about just being blah, you know, that's not that's not what's being offered up uh, as, as a golden practice, but it's the freedom to feel what we feel, 
without becoming lost in what we feel. So whether it's the joy of, of birdsong and butterfly and bamboo groves and, and, and flowing streams, or whether the misery of cold, isolation, loneliness, abandonment and despair in the, in the, uh, the local recycling station, yeah, these experiences are all possible for us, but the practice is, do we make anything out of it or not? That's the practice. And so the, uh, another thing we can do about it is to, to encourage our faith and confidence is to look at people who have been practicing. You know, I was recently inspired, and not surprised, but inspired to uh, look at and watch a uh, little video clip of Aung San Suu Kyi, who's recently, as you all know, been released from house arrest in uh, Rangoon, where she's been for so many years. And, uh, and the, the, just the radiance of this woman. I mean, even the Guardian reporter was saying she looked 10 years younger than her age. Why? Well, because the lady meditates. I think it's Venable Upandita who has been teaching her over the years. And, uh, and she talks very openly about it. Yes, she listens to the radio. Yes, she's very in tune with all the pain of the country she loves and is sacrificing her life for out of respect for her father. She, of course she loves and she's very fond of her country. But is she lost in fondness? I don't think so. If she was lost in fondness, she'd be coming out full of stress. She wouldn't be talking about a peaceful revolution. She's never advocated, as some revolutionaries do, uh, going to arms to get uh, what they're looking for. She's always only advocated a peaceful resolution. And she's continuing to advocate that because she's an example of somebody who's got some wise perspective on life. Of course, she wants democracy in Burma. And when the uh, newspaper or the reporter was asking her and saying, you know, aren't you afraid, don't you have fear that they're going to lock you up again when I report what you've just said? And she says, no, there's no fear. She said, it's a condition I live with. There's no fear. Why? Because she's not lost in the desire to have the lovable. There's no fear of the unlovable being locked up in house arrest again, separated from her family and friends, because she's not lost in the lovable, that is, the the image of her her country having democratic rule and being able to live with her friends and family, see her sons, which she hasn't seen for decades, I think. So that's something we can do in terms of how to encourage ourselves to deal with the sense of loss and to maintain an open-hearted, sensitive relationship with life, with our friends and families and pets and partners, uh, to actually cultivate that trust. There is a way of doing this. Not just to say, well, it's something that's okay in books for spiritual heroes. This is actually also for human beings here and now, 21st century planet Earth. And to really cultivate that confidence that we can do this. We can feel the sorrow and sadness of loss but not be devastated by it. There's also, of course, and, and perhaps most significantly and, uh, and most subtly, is, is what we can do in formal practice and meditation. And, and this really is uh, important. Anybody who, who wants to take up the Buddha's teachings uh, very seriously uh, really needs to consider how they're spending their time in the day. And if we really want to know what the Buddha was talking about, well, we do have to invest in that. 
and uh, we've got 24 hours in the day, so probably, almost certainly, if we wanted to, we could put 20 minutes aside a day to be quiet, because yeah, so much we're going out. Sight, sounds, smells, taste, touches, and mental activity. We're following the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch. The we're following so much. Even when we're dreaming, we're following it, because probably very few of us, if any, are mindful in our dreaming. So most of the time we're following and going out. We're following these outflows. We're cultivating them. Well, what we can also do is, tune to, is choose to return this flow. We could go against the flow of the world. Choose to go against it and return the light of attention to the source. Instead of just going out all the time and feeding this momentum of becoming, you know, to actually reverse this and to turn inwards. And this is what uh, our meditation practice is about. This is what our introspection, our our contemplation, our reflection is about. To choose to withdraw our heart energy from that momentum. Now, we were sitting meditation a wee while ago, and probably all of us here experienced this momentum of thinking about this. You know, the Ajahn is saying, let go of the past, let go of the future. That's good, a very good idea, I agree with that. <laughs> thinking about the past the momentum is there, it's strong but we've got a choice at the point and this is very important to realise we've got this choice this is why people do tend to think that suffering is happening to them it's not happening, we're just not exercising choice because we don't know we've even got that choice and we haven't exercised that choice we've just been spending all our time allowing our heart energy to be seduced by the world but we can actually restrain it, and that's why it's an experiment. Meditation is an experiment. It's an investigation into the reality of this experience here. The books, they're guidelines, they're pointers. But practice is coming back, letting go of the books, letting go of the words, letting go of the ideas, and coming back here. And then when there's this movement of the mind, we sooner or later we recognise we've got a choice at that point. Do we follow it or not? Now, if you talk like this with somebody who hasn't practised, it means absolutely nothing doesn't make any sense at all. But once you start to practice, you do realise at that moment <clears throat> you've got the meditation object, whatever your meditation object is, a certain amount of steadiness, but then a distraction comes in. You've got a choice there. And how do we exercise our choice? That's it. And if you start to really choose to well, follow what the tradition says, what the teaching says, is by way of experiment, don't follow for a while. Just Not because it's wrong to follow, we're not saying it's wrong to follow thoughts of the past, the future, but just experiment with accumulating heart energy. Build up the heart's radiance instead of just dissipating it all the time by going out. Build it up and see if you don't get a whole new experience on reality, inwardly and outwardly. Because yeah. <clears throat> that is what will happen if you, if you con- contain the heart energy. Just restrain the mind, don't follow it, come back to the breath or whatever your meditation object is, kindly, not brutally, not idealistically, not greedy for a goal, for a result, but just very kindly, patiently, by way of investigation, say, gosh, this world's a mess, my life is hard, you know, the Buddha said it doesn't have to be that way, so let's just try this experiment to see if we can conserve this heart energy for a while and see what happens. And if, if we do it, what happens is we do, we start to learn to read in a new dimension. Okay, we can all read books. 
we can all read the internet, that's, that's easy to do. But can we read what's going on here? Can we recognise <clears throat> at the moment we're about to lose our personal energy? Can we see? Do we, do we, have, that, do we have that control over our own lives? Or are we totally enslaved by conditioning? Now, the good news is that it doesn't take very much effort to see that we do have that potential. And that's wonderfully inspiring to see, wow, there really is something we can do about this experience of reality. And that's very uplifting. The, the, the next step is, well, actually, it's very hard work <laughs> because the momentum of grasping is so deep and so subtle. So then we've got to get very subtle in now the way we apply attention. And so uh, in this verse, it says that... Um, well, if you take sides neither for nor against fondness, there will be no bondage. If you take sides neither for nor against. Taking sides for and against is what we're doing most of the time. And that's what the Buddha stopped doing, and he discovered the middle way. He talked about it from the very beginning of his teachings, all the way through, the middle way, which is not taking sides. As he said many times, the first 29 years of his life, he took sides for pleasure and then he took sides against pleasure and became this heroic ascetic until eventually he found the middle way of not taking sides for or against life. And from that place of clear seeing, of not compulsively moving, then you're in a position where you can choose to engage life. So in our formal practice, uh, if we get a little inspiration to experiment with this, and then we can, we can start to discover for ourselves how wonderful it is to find this power within, this power that we can have that's there potentially if we simply learn wise restraint, skillful restraint, and not just following the conditioning. Mm. Particularly if you're during meditation, you maybe you've had a hard day, something difficult has happened, and you've got some skill in meditation, and you come to sit at the end of the day, and you can bring your mind to stillness and quietness and you're sitting there and you feel relieved but then whoop, up comes the memory of whatever it was that disturbed you through the day whether it was grief or anger often it's anger these days you know, people are so angry about everything for no good reason I mean we live in this wonderful <laughs> incredibly fortunate circumstance and yet I, think, I don't know people seem more angry than I don't know I think they've ever been but anyway it's what happens you're sitting in meditation and up comes a moment of anger but you see, I've got a choice. You are not a victim of anger. You are not a victim of grief. You are not a victim of fear. You are not a victim of grief. And that is seriously good news. But just reading about it in a book, of course, is not going to do it. It is something we need to see. And if we see it, well, then we're again inspired to exercise this. You exercise. Again. And as we exercise it also, inwardly, subtly, in meditation... Then we also recognize that in our daily life practice we can exercise it. We don't have to be taking sides all the time. Mm. Well, I was watching, I was experimenting with this the other day. I was watching a game of rugby on television. And um, I think it was, I think it was Australia playing Wales, I think what it was. And partway through the game, I recognized that I had a preference for Wales winning. <laughs> and, uh, and then, then I, but I watched it. I just, this, this, look what that's going to breed in this tension there. Now, do I have to? Do I have? Do I, do I have to do that? I mean, as a New Zealander, I mean, there are reasons for my wanting Wales to win, 
but am I a victim to that conditioned preference? Or can you just can you do something with it? And you one can investigate this in daily life as well. You can just see the whole process of preferencing around food. You, know, you see the way the monks we go through the arms round line and uh, or if you invite us to your house uh, and you give us the food and you see we put it all in this one bowl and you know you put the, the curries in and the rice in and the cookies and even the ice cream. It all goes in this one bowl. And you think, oh, yuck, what a waste of time making this nice meal for them if they're going to do that. Well, I'd like you to encourage, the reason we're doing that is because we're really interested in going beyond preferencing. That's what the Buddha encouraged. It's an ascetic practice. Don't feel you have to do it. I mean, you know, it's something that the Buddha says is an option. Don't don't feel you're not a good Buddhist if you're not doing the one bowl eaters practice. uh, It is an ascetic practice and you don't have to do it. But when we do it, it's because... We don't want to do it. That's why we do it. That uh, when you've got all the food in the bowl there, and uh, you can see this, it's, oh, I don't want my curries to me. Well, you can just watch it and just see this preferencing going on. Because one's really interested in not getting lost in pleasure, not getting lost in, in sorrow. <clears throat> <clears throat> to be able to live this life with all its joy and sorrow without being a victim to the pain. The pain will come. But we don't have to be a victim to it. We're not obliged to be a, vic- a victim to the pain of life. The grasping that we do in any moment is the cause of the suffering. If we start to see that for ourselves, then we also realize where the path to the freedom from suffering lies. So thank you very much this evening. <coughs> Dhanayam vavadagata sadhukaram dadamase 